Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. All right, welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. So on this show, we interview anyone who has a story of victory and hope. Uh, We do a lot of recovering addicts on here. When I started the podcast, people used to say, oh, you got to get Janice on there. You got to get Janice on there. Today, we have Janice on here. So Janice, you got an incredible story. I personally haven't heard it. You know, you're just saying you went to Cooper City when it was first built. So, you know, Florida native, literally. And, uh, you know, if you just want to get into your story, let's go. First of all, it's um, interesting to be here. I hardly ever get nervous when I'm asked to share. I think about people that I heard share their story over time and how much it helped me. So I don't really get that nervous, but I am a little. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a little different here. It's different, right? Yeah, I am a native. I'm a full-blooded Seminole Indian. I was born in Jackson in Miami, 1957. So that makes me about 64 years old. My mom and dad were uh, into the tourist trade. My mom was a daughter of a, well, he was once a medicine person from our native uh, culture. Then he converted to Baptist, to a fundamentalist Christian. Mm -hmm. And so I had both sides of um, beliefs growing up, you know, like... Christianity and the Seminole. Correct, yeah, the the native um, spiritual beliefs. And unfortunately, my dad was an alcoholic. He drank a lot most of our young lives. There was um, me, my brother. I had two brothers and a sister. My sister and one brother is still alive. We moved around a lot with the tourist trade. They had these places down in Miami. They call them tourist traps. Mm -hmm. And it was a place called um, Tropical Paradise, Muse Isle. If you look in Florida history books, you'll see these places. They were started by entrepreneurs, and they were built on the Miami River. So people that came from the north, even, you know, just like now, they'd buy a trip on the Jungle Queen or whatever the name of the boat, and it would float down the Miami River and park at these um, tourist traps. Mm -hmm. Well, we were part of the facility or, yeah, I guess as we call it, they would build a village inside along with animal exhibits. um, And you would live there? Yeah, we lived there. Wow. They were botanical gardens, uh, chimpanzees, flamingos, you know, and all these people from up north would come and, you know, look at us and interact with us. And it was a living village. We actually lived there. So that's where we were living when I was born. But I said all that to say we lived in different ones throughout the state. We used to go to Silver Springs in Ocala, was uh, Ross Allen's Reptile Institute, and it was the same thing, the snakes, the tortoises the village, you know, and throughout all this, you know, it was pretty amazing, you know, growing up as a kid, riding these big Galapagos tortoises, Mm -hmm. watching the snake show. And my dad at one point did wrestle alligators, but my mom said he got bit and he quit. Wow. (laughs) 
I don't even know if that's true, you know, but that's what she said. And uh, He got bit and he quit. Yeah. That was um, a big part of, our, you know, our growing up. And I say that because I guess I'm thinking about stability. You know, a lot of people get impacted by moving a lot, mm-hmm. not feeling like a foundation or security and... Making new friends all the right. time. And, and plus with my dad's drinking, you know, sometimes we were homeless, people were you know, offered us a place to live. And, you know, it would all depend on what was going on with him a lot. There was fighting. I remember my dad and my mom getting into real knockdown, drag out fights. And me and my siblings would be in the corner like crying, you know, daddy, stop. And, you know, and I'm saying that to say that's a part of what led me to places like came to is the fear, mm-hmm. you know, that, that deep-seated fear of, like, what's going to happen next? Are we going to be all right? Is Dad going to be all right? You know, these feelings as a kid instilled a lot of fear in me, whereas before it kind of was real idyllic with the animals and, the you know, the tropical paradise. And around that age, I guess I was around five or six, when these, you know, other things started to impact my um, peace, I guess. And then the other thing was going to school. I had to start first grade at uh, Citrus Grove Elementary in Miami. And I remember being terrified and hating it, not wanting to go. And um, and now was this with other Seminole kids or this is with... No, this was a public school. Public school. Yeah. And um, I remember crying and crying and crying when I got there. And then they took me from the office. The teacher came up, got me, took me to the classroom. And she was trying to calm me down. And she says... Um, we have another Seminole here. His name is so-and-so. Do you know him? And mm-hmm. I started shaking my head no and started crying more <laughs> and more because I thought, oh, my God, I don't even know this guy. I guess what I'm saying is I never really felt okay after having to go to school and then the episodes with my dad and, you know. And the next big thing that changed my life was I was sexually molested around the age of six by one of my dad's drinking buddies. And to this day, I can remember how I went, you know, like they say, um, a deer in the headlights, like I froze. Mm-hmm. There's a thing they say, fight, flight, or freeze. And mm-hmm. I just froze. And I never told anybody. I don't know if I was embarrassed. I think I was more like went into some kind of numbness. Unfortunately, that wasn't the first time. I mean, that wasn't the last time I was molested a few times before the age of, say, 12. Hmm. You know, and that's the, about the age that I started to act out. I think first grade to fifth grade was somewhat, quote unquote, normal. I did good in school. I had good grades. But around the fifth grade, I was um, continually molested by a person. I'll say my stepfather that's when I started to, you know, get into the behavior. You know, I started to um, skip school, started using. I probably picked up weed or something to drink at first. And um, I don't know what was wrong with me. I couldn't identify my feelings at that time. But I knew when I put this in my body, whether it was a drink, a pill, or mm-hmm. I knew that I felt okay. You know, and years later, after, you know, a lot of help, I understood that I was escaping my feelings. I didn't want to feel my feelings. Well, I didn't know what my feelings were. I identified them later to be, of course, fear, shame, 
no self-esteem. You know, the incidents themselves made me feel dirty. Mm -hmm. Something was wrong with me. You know, as a child, you don't have the knowledge to say something's wrong with him. Something's wrong with them. It went to some, what is wrong with me? Mm -hmm. Why does this happen to me? What is wrong with me? So I started to adopt that feeling of like less than embarrassed, ashamed. And, you know, so when I started getting high, I was okay. And the only problem with that is it brings its own set of, you know, problems. Mm -hmm. And um, Where were you living at this time? We had finally settled on the Hollywood Res, which is in um, Broward County, mm -hmm. Florida here. And um, it was a lot different. I think we settled here around the late 60s because I remember and we had a little baby apartment and... Um, remember standing outside when they landed on the moon. I was about probably 12. So we landed there and, and, you know, started going to school, like I said, public schools, and then I started to act out. I used anything and everything. I used to huff gasoline out of people's cars and lighter fluid and um, something called rubber cement. <laughs> it was like some kind of glue. A lot of people say they sniffed airplane glue, but... I never did that. It was rubber cement. Yeah. I don't even know if they still make it, but anything, spray paint, you know. And who taught you all this stuff? Kids hanging Just around. Just other kids, yeah. older kids. One part of the era, me and my sister went off to boarding schools. When the government put Indians on reservations out west, they built um, government boarding schools to teach the children how to become American, how to mm -hmm. assimilate into the dominant culture, how to forget their culture. So... Back in those days, it was not a good thing. By mm -hmm. the time we went, it was just more of a boarding school. I asked my sister recently, I said, wonder how we ended up in boarding school. She <laughs> goes, I think mom didn't want to take care of us. <laughs> you know, like she had a job. She yeah. had two jobs. She was probably like, oh, we can go there and they'll be okay. So anyway, it was when I went there that I kind of started going wild because a lot of the kids there were wild, you know, because they come from very impoverished homes. I mean, mm -hmm. the Seminoles have been very blessed. Mm -hmm. Now, was that recently? Because now, you know, you guys are receiving checks and money. Was that not happening when you were growing up? At all. Oh, it we wasn't were, happening at all? At all. We were very, very poor as even a tribe. We lived on government subsidies, government wow. housing. Most of the, even a lot of the houses there now are still from HUD. See, I never knew that. I would just imagine that like forever There's, that's been going on. Since I've been alive, I've always heard that Indians get government checks, mm -hmm. you know, and that is a myth. There's no tribe in the U.S. that just, you know, the government gives you a check. We were considered in poverty. Mm -hmm. So we got the subsidies, you know. These big tractor trailers used to come into our recreation park full of government food, you know, the cheese and mm -hmm. the macaroni and, you know, all that stuff that they provided for us. Now they give food stamps. Back then they used to give food, mm -hmm. actual food. Wow. So the money that people, that Seminoles received today, that's from the Hard Rock? Yes. Okay. It's from the gaming enterprises. And, and when did that start? Actually, we started getting a little money when the tribe figured out we could sell tax-free cigarettes. Hmm. I want to say that was the 70s. And that brought in a little revenue. And then it graduated into the bingo. Mm -hmm. Because being on um, federal land, we're not subject to state laws and state taxes. Mm -hmm. So we could have high-stakes bingo, whereas it's outside the reservation, it's regulated, and the jackpots could only be so much. Wow. 
So we started with the bingo, and then it evolved into the gaming machines, wow. which were very basic in the beginning. And, oh, my God. And so our, it really hasn't been around that long. Not at all. I mean, I'm probably the last generation that actually... Experienced real poverty. Right, yeah. Because my sister's kids, I never had kids, but her sons, you know... They had a little bit of the poverty, mm -hmm. but halfway through their life, we started getting... Um, it always interested me that the community would say, like, we're going to divvy up this money amongst all of our people, because no other community on the planet does that. When someone becomes successful, they might take care of their immediate family, and that's about it. But it really is something unique that they are like, hey, we're not going to let the tribe starve, right? you know? Right. And I'm sure there's other consequences that happen from the money. You know, I've, like I told you, I have some people that I've sponsored that I've seen what happens. Right, you know? right. It's a double-edged sword <clears throat> for sure. Mm -hmm. And um, so it evolved into the gaming machines. And, and back then it was only like these tin can buildings. You know how they do those prefab mm -hmm. modular stuff? Yeah, yeah. It was really rudimentary. And we weren't really making that much money. I mean, I know we started getting dividend checks, but they weren't that much. Mm -hmm. It blew up when they built the Hard Rock in 07. And the first one? Yeah. Is in Florida. Is the first Hard Rock ever? No, our we franchised it in the beginning. Oh, okay. Yeah, Hard Rock already existed. I think it originated in gotcha. London. And okay, it, it so was, the Hard Rock is already a thing, and you guys franchised right. under them. Yeah, wow. we licensed this one and the one in Tampa, and we built the hotels and the casinos. and then. Um, so these are the very first seminal Hard Rocks. Correct. Wow. And then as time moved on, it was all in the paper and everything, mm -hmm. we... You know, as a licensee, we would pay royalties. Or yeah. Rent. yeah. So the company that owned the Hard Rock franchise decided to sell, and the Seminoles bought it. Hmm. I think under a little over a billion dollars or something. So you guys now own the Hard Rock franchise? Yes. So, and, like, wow. if you see Hard Rock in, say, Puerto Rico, it's not technically ours. We license, yeah, yeah. So we get paid by them. So wow. a lot of times we. We wish that would be very clear because mm -hmm. when something goes wrong at some hard rock, they like think the, it's you guys, yeah, like yeah. the one in New Orleans where it it there was a big incident, it, it like collapsed, right? Right. I was there. Yeah, they were building. No way. Not when it collapsed, but I saw it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I saw it, and there. I remember they were saying that they were building a hard rock, and it like exactly, and wow. then you know, and so it's related. Like we messed up, but mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't us. It was the people that yeah, bought you just franchise it, right? So anyway, that's when the really we started getting some funds was mm -hmm. around 07. So back to your story. So, you know, you're 12 years old. Uh, you start acting now in fifth grade, it starts. Yeah. And um, so around 13, I started acting out, smoking weed, doing whatever, and um, went to boarding school. And that's when I learned a lot of skills, the car stealing and the, hmm. the spray paint huffing. And, you know, so I really kind of went way south there but um when i came home that summer you know i started experimenting with um hallucinogens and because i was already in like this you know the effects of the molestation and had taken root and i didn't know that you know the drugs and everything were just a symptom of mm -hmm. what was wrong with me what was wrong with me was my spirit was damaged i was hurt i was a victim you know, all these things that I didn't, you know, just cognitively understand mm -hmm. only through 
years and later. And that's kind of the point of the show because it's like people see someone who's homeless and on the street and they're like, look at this idiot loser. They probably had so many chances. You know, they see people on drugs and they're just like, look you know, down look them. down on them and, oh, that could never happen to me. Or, you know, they've had so many chances, but they don't understand that. You know, when I see someone abusing drugs, I know that they're covering up some type of pain. Right. And Trauma. that, and that's apparent to me. Right. And I hope that it becomes apparent to other people that this is a sick person, not a bad person. Right. You know, that's my goal of the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. What I believe in today is, you know, a God of my understanding. I believe in energy. I believe in service. I believe in um, my God isn't the same God that I had five years ago mm -hmm. or even a year ago, you know, since I started this spiritual journey, had a, what do you call it, a spiritual awakening, I have evolved, you know, and this is what I really believe in is a spiritual evolution, you know, like 50 years ago, we didn't know what a cell phone was, you know, mm -hmm. now it's like, you know, technology's like, <laughs> you know, crazy. And so... Yeah, every I, year the one before is obsolete. <laughs> yeah. And so... Why I believe in an evolution is I don't want to stay where I was. You know, I want to learn. I want to experience. I want to practice, you know, something that's definitely greater than me and has a base in love and service and compassion. Because of what happened to me, I adopted the attitude of, you know, stealing the cars, doing all the things I did to hurt other people. I didn't care because I had... um being hurt created this um, anger, you know, mm -hmm. almost a rage that I didn't recognize because I had a mask of like, you know, always smiling. Everybody liked to party with me. I was like the life of the party and, mm -hmm. you know, but inside I was dying and I was in a rage and did not even know that because at 13, 14, you know, who knows? I didn't know the word trauma. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't know the word anxiety, PTSD, you know, all I didn't know those words. Mental health. Right, yeah. mental health. Mm -hmm. So by the time I was 13, I started having suicidal thoughts. I thought, it's never going to get better. You know, my dad had left a long time ago. My stepdad was not good. Mm -hmm. My mom worked a lot. I never felt like there was anyone I could really connect to. I felt alone. But the damage from being molested had already been done, so I had no self-esteem, and I felt like... So it was depression, really, too, and I did not want to live. I mm -hmm. didn't want to wake up another day and and feel like nothing's ever going to change and nothing... Of hopelessness. Mm -hmm. So I started to entertain thoughts of suicide. And I guess I was reaching out for help because I remember telling my mom, I'd say, Mom, what would you do if I killed myself? Wow. And she'd say, stop talking like that. What's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, she'd snap at me. And so it started to, you know, grow these feelings. And um, I remember thinking, if I don't kill myself, you know, I'm just going to get high. And that's when I started experimenting with LSD and mescaline tablets. And so in the state I was in already, it kind of like made it worse. Mm -hmm. You know, I started to get like freaked out. I started to hear voices. And the voice kept saying, when are you going to kill yourself? You know, you got to kill yourself. You know, that's when are you going to do it? When are you going to do it? You know, it was like mm -hmm. on a loop. So I would smoke weed and, you know, try to and drink and try to quiet that voice. But in the back of my mind, I was starting to really believe that this is what I have to do. Mm -hmm. And it was, 
you know, it was already bad, but what happened was the hallucinogens elevated it to another level. Mm-hmm. So that's what I was going to do. It was New Year's Eve 1972. And we were living in a trailer home on the res, and my brother had some people over partying. And I said, well, when everybody leaves, I'm going. And first of all, I had stolen the gun from my stepfather, who mm. happened to be a cop. Wow. Yeah. So I had this police revolver and was waiting for everybody to go home. I was going to go in my room and blow my brains out. As fate would have it, a guy came by, a good friend of the family, and uh, he said, can you drive me up to the 7-Eleven? I'd like to get some, you know, he just wanted soda or something. I said, okay, and I didn't have a plan, but I had the gun on me. And when we got there, I saw that the um, clerk was by himself. It was probably like 2 or 3 in the morning. And I had this great idea. I walked back outside and I said, I want to rob this store. Because I had this great idea that, hey, he's all by himself. I'll rob the store, get the money, and run away. I won't have to kill myself. I'll just run away somewhere and, you know. With the money from 7-Eleven. How how old are you? Uh, 15. Wow. Yeah, so I had this geographical, you know, solution in mind. Like, if I go to New York or California, it'll be better. And Mm -hmm. I thought this money was going to get me a new life. But it was a tragedy. What happened was, as we were robbing the store... My friend ran out the door, and I had the gun on the man, the clerk. His name was actually Charles, I found out later. I had the gun on Charles, and two customers walked in. And I looked at them, and I froze. And, you know, to this day, I really don't know why I shot him. I kind of think that maybe I thought I had to kill all the witnesses. But when I shot him... The sound was so loud, you know, inside of 7-Eleven, it echoed so loud that my ears started ringing. And it was almost like I went into an out-of-body experience. Like, I felt like I was on the ceiling looking down Mm -hmm. at what I had done. And then the noise kind of like woke me up. And I panicked, naturally. And we ran away and, you know, we didn't get arrested until a year later, about a year later. I was 16 by then, and I turned 17 in jail, and I was uh, charged for murder as an adult. Hmm. So at 17, I got a life sentence. Were you under the influence at the time, or were you just like... Well, I don't know if you've ever heard this um, this saying, like, the drugs stop working. Mm, Of course. Yeah. And that night, I was drinking, I was smoking, but I think my heightened state of knowing that I was going to kill myself... I think it was probably adrenaline, but mm-hmm. I never really felt high. You know, I, I just felt desperate, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then I thought I had the solution. You know, I shot and killed him, and then wow. we ran out, and like I said, we didn't get arrested till a year later. And I've shared many times that when I was molested, I had to go away in my head in order to deal or survive the trauma. And it happened enough times that by the time I was 15 years old... You were able to do it. Yeah. I was totally disassociated from my feelings. And, you know, I didn't feel bad. I didn't feel good. I didn't feel... I was a little nervous, of course, you know, once I realized that you just killed somebody and you got to go. You know, I had that panic. But the normal feelings of a person of, like, you know, doing something, I had none because... Every time somebody put their hands on me, every time I was made to feel, you know, so low and, you know, 
It had created something in me, not just the rage, but the ability to not feel. You know, and I hear that from a lot of people in my community. Mm-hmm. You know, the addiction sometimes gets them to a point where nothing matters except mm-hmm. what they need, that self-centeredness. And uh, again, I we got arrested a year later. I went to prison at 17 with a life sentence. And uh, I did seven years. At the time, there was only one prison in the state up in Ocala. And it was an old-ass prison. <laughs> And, and no AC, cockroaches, wow. and yeah, we, that place crazy. infested, man. It was bad. But No AC in Florida? No AC. It's a little bit north Florida, but, but still. still. <laughs> yeah. It still was hot. And you know what? I went in there with, I'm 17 years old with really no life experience. And, you know, but I had that thing inside of me that was sick. My spirit was sick. I wasn't spiritual in any sense. So I went in there, I tell people, I didn't go in there looking for the chapel, you know. I went in there looking like, what's up, man, mm-hmm. you know, what's going on? I wanted to, because I always had that thing, like, I got to find something outside of me to focus on, to change my feelings, to be, to feel, you know, all of that. And um, so I got in a lot of trouble. I got in with the, you know, the hoodlums, and I did a lot of hard time. I mean, I did one six-month stint in confinement one time. I lost like 30 pounds. and Six months by yourself? Yeah, it went in solitary. Well, actually, we got locked up because of a riot, so they didn't have enough room, so there was two to a room, but um, it was bad. I mean, you know, sometimes I don't even talk about it because the memories are not good. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, but I was 17, so I had that youth, too. I had that youth dumbness that I was just rolling with it and, mm-hmm. you know, thinking, um, you know, I had that mentality of they don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do the way I want to do it. I don't care if I get locked up, if I get in trouble. I remember one time trying to smuggle weed in through the visiting park because I would, they used to have a camera girl to take pictures with you and your family. Mm-hmm. So it was an inmate, and they had the camera. They had to go in and check in and check out. Well, I used to bring weed in because the officer didn't really shake me down too much. But this day, it was a different officer, and she said, I'm going to do a strip search. And I just said, no, you're not. And I shoved her out of the way and took <laughs> off down, down, wow. out, down the compound. And she was a little overweight, right? And so she's trying to chase me, and I'm running, and I get to the dorm, and I flush the stuff down the, you know. But they still locked me up. It didn't matter. Yeah, you know? they so, knew what was going on. <laughs> yeah, so I was always into something because I wasn't okay, you know. I saw a lot of girls come in through the years that were terrified, that were horrified to be in prison. You know, one lady I know, she had like um, 20 years because she ran a stop sign or something, but she was under the influence, and the person got killed. And she got charged with vehicular manslaughter, got 20 years. She had three girls at home. Hmm. She was a housewife, and she was terrified every day of her life, and just all she wanted was to go home. I'd see her every evening with her rosary beads, every day, day in and day out. That wasn't me. I was 17. Mm-hmm. I didn't give a damn about anything because I didn't. Now, you're in there with adults? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of um, older people, younger people, you know, and it's kind of like that prison mentality where, you know. You're, were people trying you because you were younger? Not too much. Not too much? No, not too much because I was there on a life sentence on a murder charge, you know. Yeah. Sometimes you don't want to mess with people with that charge. So mm-hmm. mostly— 
you know, it's a women. It's a lot different. You know, they're more like trying to find out what you did and gossip about it. And you know, <laughs> it's not really like, oh, you're a badass. Yeah. We're scared of you. Not that much. You know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I got did the seven years. But the last year, I kind of like straightened up a little bit. I got in a program, and then the state of Florida changed the ma uh, mandatory stuff, and I was able to parole out after seven years. I always tell people. I didn't know I had a, like something called addiction, which I've come to find out addiction is not the drug. You know, addiction is the way I perceive something and the way I think about it and then the way I feel about it and the way I behave behind that feeling. You know, mm -hmm. it's all between my ears, stuff in my head. So I didn't know all that. I got out and I thought, oh, when you get out of jail, you get out of prison, you party, you know, and I wasn't even off work release and I was getting high. You know, it was the first time I smoked Freebase. This had to be 1981. I went in at 17. I got out at 24. And so mentally, I was still like 17, you know, yeah. and just really still wild. And so I was out about two years and nine months, and I had gotten on opiates. I was addicted to Dilaudid, and um, I was a menace to society again, and um, I got sent back. And when I got sent back, they changed the guidelines again, and they reinstated my life sentence. Oh, when I got arrested and went to the Broward County Jail, I escaped because I was kicking, mm -hmm. and I was miserable. I was sweating. And How'd I was... you escape? Well, back then, the jail was real different. It was a one-story building, and they had like a little courtyard with two double fences. I think it's the 12-foot and the 18-foot fence with the razor wire, and we had little picnic tables. Mm -hmm. So after dinner, supper— They'd let you go out there for about 15, 20 minutes, you know, kind of little outside time. And this is Broward County County? Before. Okay. Because this is the jail, that big jail right there on Coconut Creek yeah, yeah, Parkway. Yeah. Paul that? Ryan? Yeah, that's yeah. it, I think. And um, But like I said, there was nothing like that there. It was like a field. A and, tiny jail. Yeah, a wow. tiny jail. And so i was kicking dope and i was sick and i wasn't having it and i said i told somebody i'm not staying here like it was a bad hotel or <laughs> yeah, something <laughs> like you just walk out. yeah it got bed bugs i'm not staying and i called my friend on the outside well i got a message to her that to meet me out on hammondville road i said i'm leaving i'm telling her i'll be there and i hit the fence even though i was dope sick and everything i hit the first fence and then i crawling up the second fence. You went over the wire? Over the... I still have a scar on my leg where oh it caught God. me on the second fence when I was trying to hurl my... Were they... Did they see you do they this? They didn't see me right away because there was... Say there was 15 of us out there in the yard and then after our 20 minutes or whatever it was, they would tell us to line up and walk back in and they would count you, you know, yeah, and yeah, they yeah. were missing one when they counted. How did you flip around the barbed wire? I just crawled up, and then once I got up there, I, a girl had given me a sweater, uh -huh. a heavy sweater, so it kind of protected me from it, and I just kind of, like, maneuvered my way over it, and but it caught my leg. Yeah. Because, you know, once I got on the razor wire, mm -hmm. then my weight kind of, like, you know... Pushed it down. Pushed yeah. it over, but I remember hanging upside down. That's where my the scar is on my leg because it caught me. And I had to jerk my leg, and I wow. fell like a sack of potatoes yeah. on the other side, and I lost my glasses. So I had in, run into the woods, which was surrounding the place. And because I was dope sick and I was crazy, I mm -hmm. didn't really perceive the, the lapse of time. So I thought it had been too long. 
I took too long. Now I can't go to the road because they're probably already there. When actually it was only like maybe two or three minutes, I could have made it. But I decided to hide in the woods Mm -hmm. because I thought, oh, they're probably out there now. They didn't get there till probably 20 minutes later. You know, I could have gone. But anyway, long story short, I got caught and they gave me six years for, oh, I was hiding behind a little gas station in an abandoned van, mm-hmm. one of those kidnapped vans, those white <laughs> vans. I had, you know, hopefully my friend was going to come looking, but I was hanging out there. And what happened was there was a phone there, even though it was an abandoned gas station, and I was able to make a collect call to my uncle to go tell her where I was. Well, the police were already at my uncle's house. And they heard the thing, so they came and whoosh, surrounded oh, the no. little van. And uh, the cop said, Billy? And he's got the the horn in it. And I said, yeah. He goes, I'm coming in there to get you. You're going to stand up and put your hands behind your back, and I'm going to handcuff you. We're going to take you out of there. <laughs> and I said, okay. Like I'm rolling my eyes. I said, okay. He comes in, and the first thing I did was go for his gun, and we oh went into a, yeah, a knock-down, drag-out fight, and everybody knows the police win, you know. There was like a <laughs> yeah. dozen of them, and they took me back to jail, and uh, I got six. So for people that are listening, so your name is Janice, but people were calling you Billy at the time? Yeah, most of the officers and inmates used to call me Billy. Yeah. So, or they, what I hate is they do this a lot. They say chief. <laughs> Wow, that's I fucked know, up. They don't even know what a racial. <laughs> they didn't know that back then. Anyway, they arrested me. I got six years for the escape, reinstated the life sentence, and I tooted off back to prison. And this time I did 16 years straight. I went back at 26. I got out at 42. Wow. What were those 16 years like? Mm. Well, the first 12 were my usual of screwing up, getting in trouble, going to lockdown, just an all-around pain to the facility. And every now and then, you know, I would think, man, you know, I got to do something, man. Because they gave me a date of like, I don't know, 25 years away. This was in 83 when I went back. They said, you'll be reviewed every two years. You'll have the opportunity to move your date down depending on your behavior. And your behavior is yeah. terrible. And, yeah, and I walked out of that first hearing thinking— Okay, I'm a life. I have a life sentence on a murder charge, and I'm a parole violator. They're not gonna let me out anytime soon, no matter how good I am. So f that, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna do whatever I want to do. I'm gonna do my time like I, you know. I had this wannabe gangster mentality, you know, mm-hmm. like you do the crime, you do the time, and you know, because I was raised up in that culture, pretty much. So, you know, being in prison such a young age, so I was really, you know. What does Jimmy say? Misinformed by Mm -hmm. misinformed people. So that was my life. And about 12 years in, I was tired. I had been in so much trouble. My date was moving forward, not down. Mm -hmm. You know, they had added years to my, they called it a presumptive parole release date. So I was, you know, 12 years in and I'm like, I'm never going to get out of here. I have a life sentence, I'm a parole violator on a murder charge. Unless something happens, I'm never going to get out of here. So this one incident, I don't even remember incident, but they sent me to lock up again. I'm walking down the stairs, and it's like two tiers of cells. 
And, you know, there's a bunch of crazy people in prison, too. So they're yelling and screaming all the time. It's like a psych ward almost, They're screaming, hollering. They said, oh, it, Billy's back. What's up, Billy? What'd you do? What's going on? Everybody's yelling. And in my head, I can see myself walking these stairs. They're going to put me in a room with a steel door, with a trap door that locks. I'm going to go in a room with a steel cot or a cement rack with a plastic mattress and a plastic pillow and a sink and a toilet in the corner and maybe a crazy roommate, you know, cellmate that drives you crazy. I knew I could see it in my head and I and I had a moment and I said, and then I'm going to lay down here for 60 days. I know why I got locked that time. I got myself into the in-house drug program, the prison drug program, mm-hmm. and I said, I'm going to get, I'm going to straighten up. I'm going to do this program. I'm going to stop getting in trouble. I'm going to stop getting written up. I'm going to get myself out of this place. I was in the uh, drug program about two weeks, and I used, and I got high, and I got caught, and that's why I was given the 60 days in the hole. Wow. So it was really like a bottom, you know, because here I am. Trying. Yeah, thinking I could do something, and I went to Locke, and I just said, I'm going down there, and I'm thinking, I'm never going to get out of this place, you know. And, you know, like I said, I was raised with a faith, you know, the Christian church, the spiritual teachings, and I knew there was a God. I knew there was a great spirit. I knew there was a power out there that was for me and could help me and is always there. But due to what happened and my rage, inward rage as a child from the trauma and the fear, all of that, you know, I I got lost. I lost my way. I did not turn to God until that moment, and I finally broke, you know. It was like a screenshot of my addiction when I was walking down that steps. I said, oh, my God, I'm never going to get out of here if I don't change. I'm doing a life sentence on a murder charge, on, and I'm a parole violator. I'm never going to get out. And look at me. I think I'm getting over on these people. Mm-hmm. I think I'm handling things. I'm, You know, it was a moment of, like, humility, like, you don't know nothing, you know, You what's going on? What do you, and I cried out to God. I said, God, please help me. Help me, please. I don't know what to do. Was that, you know, what do they call it? Foxhole prayer. Yeah, and that moment of desperation. And crazy enough, um, they moved me to a room during this 60 days that had a, it was an empty room. They said, Billy, we got to move you. We got to do this, that, blah. I said, all right. She said, you're going to go in this room temporarily, then we're going to move you to another room. I said, okay. So I go in there, and there's nothing in there but the plastic mattress, no sheets, no nothing. And I was waiting, and I picked up the plastic mattress, and there was a little pamphlet. And it was a newsletter from a place called the Human Kindness Foundation. And it was started by these two hippies back in the day that wanted to do ministry to inmates, like hmm. writing pen pal letters, yeah. sending this. And it was about the Eastern religion, like Buddha. and uh, But it taught about meditation and um, yoga. They would send you little yoga poses you could do. Wow. And you could subscribe to the newsletter. What and year is this? This was 92 or 93. I got transferred in 95 up north. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it was like right before 95. And so... 
with this thing, you could write to them and they would send you books. And they sent me a book called We're All Doing Time, which he was saying, we're all here on earth. You know, we all got this amount of time. What are we going to do? Do this, what we've been doing, being here, suffering. Even though all the world suffers, you know, we have some choice in it. And um, the best way to relieve suffering is to be of service, to help others, to practice loving kindness. So that's when I started the journey. And like I said, that was about 12 years in. Hmm. I eventually got transferred to a prison up in North Florida. And I always tell people, I said, that's the first time I hadn't found out there was black rednecks. <laughs> I mean, it was a backwoods yeah. country North prison. Florida is yeah. a whole other world, right? The big ball of tobacco, mm-hmm. not, you know, not saying anything against tobacco, but there was a culture there that was totally different. Because I came from Broward County, BCI. And the officers came from Broward or North Dade, and they were cool. They brought us weed. They brought us this. They, you know, we were all like, and we had two to a room. We kind of like, we were comfortable, you know. And if you had weed and you were a mover, you know, you really had it comfortable. Yeah. And I get up there, and it's a, it's like a shelter. It's a bed, bunk, 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 for this long-ass line and the officer station in the middle. So you cannot not be seen. And then the restrooms are right behind the officer station, and it's open showers, open toilets. It was so culture shock to mm-hmm. death. And it's when I got there. That yeah, because in Broward there was pots, mm-hmm. right? So you basically have your own room, and it's right. like a big pod where right. it's a circle, and there's two stories, and there's little cells on the bottom and cells yep. on the top. And then here you're like in— um, it looked like a homeless shelter, you know, or a, or a shelter. Mm-hmm. It's just all the way down, bunk, like, bunk, Like bunk. in Cool Hand Luke. Yeah, yeah, just <laughs> like that. And, uh, oh, my God, I hated it. So I kept practicing. You know, I kept praying. I learned to meditate. I started walking the big track in the rec department. It was a big field. And I did a walking meditation day after day after day. And God revealed to me that I was going to get out. So when you're on this spiritual journey— how are you dealing with situations? Like if someone is like pissing you off, are you like trying to not hit somebody? Like how are you really changing while in there? Yes. The biggest change was this, because I was pretty much always a kind person. I wasn't, you know, like a bad person. Like some people are really angry. And, you know, mm-hmm. I ha- always had a roommate that was angry like that. She threw all my stuff over the bunk because she liked me and I didn't like her. Hmm. And she says, well, get the bug out of the room then. And she threw all my, you know, there was very aggressive, very mean, bad people. But I was never like that. I was kind, but I was just messed up, you know. So I was always respected because I sold weed in the beginning. I could get drugs and I could, you know, so I had a lot of respect. And then when I changed my life, I just was really quiet and I didn't mess with people. You didn't and have I, a lot of problems. Yeah, and I had um, family support, so I always had money. I always had canteen, and that makes you respected. Mm-hmm. And I was very generous. You know, I gave people everything pretty much I had, so... I never really had enemies or never got into fights. I had, you know, that wasn't my energy. Gotcha. Yeah, so it was okay like that. I got out without having to fight and feel threatened, except that one time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I really got this message that I was going to get out. I got, From the day I got there, it was exactly three years because I had ordered this little, um, 
one we read just for today. Yeah, yeah. it's like the white book. Yeah, it's but like it was the, more religious-based kind of, but they give you sayings every mm-hmm. day. and, and It's uh, like the Just for Today daily meditation. Right. It's like a daily meditation it's, pamphlet, yeah, right? Exactly. You had a two, one or two or three-year subscription. And I said, I'm going to get the three-year because that's how long I'm going to be here. And I don't know why I said that. You just but had exactly, that yeah, and exactly three years I got out. I got paroled after 16 years, mm. and I got out. And I thought, you know, I'm good. I don't get high, and I won't get in trouble, and everything's going to be all right. But And you were 42 when you got 42, out? 42, yeah. And I didn't know that I had post-traumatic stress. <laughs> I didn't know anything. I just got out and thought everything was going to be chilly. And a lot of it was because I had family support. Mm-hmm. You know, my family was always there for me, thank God. And uh, But I didn't get well. I didn't fix my spirit to the part. When I got out, I was good. I was very spiritual walk and everything. But then I got into family stuff. I started trying to work. You know, the very first night I got out, I went to Walmart to buy a toothbrush and toothpaste and some T-shirts, and I had a panic attack because I had never seen so many toothbrushes and toothpastes. And, you know, it was the first time I started to understand that it's a little rough out here, you know, and it wasn't out here. It was in here. You know, I didn't know I had anxiety. I didn't know the PTSD. I didn't know any of that. So I had a hard time adjusting after a while with my feelings. Now, when I was working like seven days a week and running and running, you know, I wasn't dealing with it. But then that got to be too much. And one day I'm at the gas station to get gas. I was running a supply run for my mom's store. And I said, I'm just going to get a beer. I'm just, I need to chill, man. I'm just going to get a beer. And from that beer... I went back to using hard drugs. I got high, and I wrecked a car. Hmm. I ran into a, um, a property, and I got arrested, and I went back to jail. And I was, what, 47 or so, and, and uh, I thought I was done. I thought I was, I'm going to be a parole violator for the third time on a life sentence on a murder charge. I'm done, you know, and I went to jail. But my public defender, no, I had an attorney, he said, uh, Oh, we can plead out to this, to this. I said, no, we can't plead out. I said, I can't get convicted of anything because it'll be an automatic parole violation. Right now, I'm just in limbo until these charges. Mm -hmm. So we went to jury trial, and I got acquitted. Went back to prison. The parole commission listened to me or listened to my lawyer who said, Janice is a good person who has an illness she's never been treated for. And I believe with all my heart that if she gets help, she'll be a productive member of society. And this is the where I know that God has a hand in everything, you know, because the parole commission in the state of Florida, like Florida and Texas, the parole commissions. They on, don't give a fuck. <laughs> they stamp your shit uh, revoked and uh-huh. put you back in jail and you will not be heard from. So they decided to send me to a treatment center. They even said, maybe we failed her hmm. because they were like... How come she was never treated in right, all these right, years? Right, right, She's done all this time. Not one therapist. It, yeah, and it didn't help. So doing more time is not going to help. Mm-hmm. You know, she needs help. And so when I went to that facility, I got introduced to a 12-step program and, you know, bumps and lumps along the way because I hated to talk. I hated mm-hmm. to talk to people. I hated to be around people. I've driven up to meetings and looked in the window, and I'd get anxiety and drive away. But, you know, I kept going back. I kept doing what I was taught. And um, 
18 years later, I've been, you know, a real productive member of society. But early on in this part of the story, I started to deal with killing this man, and I did not know how. I was in a group, and the therapist said, humans develop a conscience between the age of one and six. He was talking about, you know, eventually mental development. And I perked up, and after the group, I said, if I developed a conscience between one and six, I said, how come I didn't feel anything when I killed this man? And he was like, what? He goes, I didn't even know about this. What? What? Mm -hmm. You know? And we started talking. He was a therapist, so he started helping me. He said, do you want to work on that? And everything in my body was like, no, no. No." I was screaming, no, but my, you know, God, my understanding, I think my mouth said yes. And he asked me to write a letter. He said, I want you to write a letter. And I figured it was, you know, my first mind was like, oh, I'm going to write a letter to this guy I killed. Mm -hmm. And he said, I want you to write a letter to yourself. Little girl. No, write a letter to yourself as if it's from the man who you killed. So I'm writing this letter as if I'm Charles. Mm. So it took me weeks to write this letter. Because, you know, it was like 30 years later now from the tragic moment, right? So it was the first time that, you know, how in the program they say, you know, there's some things you can deal with now and some things you put on a shelf and you'll take them down later. Mm -hmm. This was 30 years later and I was opening it. And I was crying and crying, crying, did not want to write this, didn't know what to say, had a hard time. But I finally thought, you know, I'm 46 years old. I've been locked up 23 years by then. So half my life I'm locked up, institutionalized. If I don't do something different, you know, what's going to happen? And I was willing to do something, you know, and and I wrote this letter. And I don't know how because I was crying and crying and And I wrote the letter because I thought he was going to ask me for it the next time he came to group. He never said a word. (laughs) I'm like, I I died over this letter. He didn't even talk to me. The following week, he goes, did you write the letter? I said, yeah. He goes, all right. Well, we're going to go in a room with the the rest of some recovering addict friends of yours, and uh, you're going to read it. I was like, oh, my God. Wow. So we go in there. And he says, all right. And he kind of explains to them, Janet's going to read, blah, blah, blah. And I it's changed my life. The first line of the letter said, Janice, I know how you and I crossed paths that night. And right in that moment, there was like several revelations going on. Like I said, you know, in the Indian way, we never believe in death. You know, we believe that it's a journey. And when you finish this life, you're... You know, when we buried our people, we buried them facing west to go towards the sunset because they're journeying on. So in that moment, I thought, I felt this moment of like, he knows everything about me. He knows I was molested. He knows about my dad. He knows about all the fear and the shame and the the unworthiness I felt my whole life. He knows. And so... In that moment, I felt this compassion. I know how you and I crossed paths that night. He knows I didn't get there in one day, and he understands. And the second line said, Hmm. and I'm not mad at you. And, you know, in that moment, I felt like he's not mad at me because he understands. And the last line said, and I'm not dead. I'm just not here. 
And, you know, I, the whole time I'm crying and slobbering and mm-hmm. barely reading and freaking out. And, you know, but, and people say, you know, well, it's you wrote the letter. You know, you could look at it like, oh, you wrote the letter. But in my mind, I feel like God is a superpower. You know, God is a super spirit. Mm-hmm. All kind, like they say, God works in mysterious ways. Well, I think this was a tool of the Great Spirit. In our language, we call him Fishakigomichi, which means the breath maker. And the breath maker made it possible because everything in life, I mean, most things in life is a choice. Recovery is a choice. Using is a choice. Things you can choose. And I choose to believe that that was a direct instrument of the breath maker to help me. Mm-hmm. get through something, to come to an understanding, to be able to move on in order to do something better, right? I didn't get all that in that one moment, but I know because I had terrible PTSD after that. I couldn't see a dead animal beside the road without going into, like, convulsive crying because mm. what ha- was happening was... The way that I couldn't feel anything. It just exploded. Yeah, yeah. it came, and it was like, I, I don't know if I'm going to live through this kind of feeling, you know, but. Yeah, when I got clean, my first year, I was just crying all the time in meetings, at home, by myself, and, you know, I could still feel that feeling of, like, when it first happened, you know, it was like, uh, it feels like you're being reborn, you know, it really is something when you're an addict and like for men, you know, trying to be tough and all these things and realizing you're not. Right. It's like the gates open up. Mm -hmm. So from there, you know, I asked there, I mean, I remember he said, Janice, what you did was wrong. There's no way around what you did was wrong. And as soon as he said those words, it was almost like he literally punched me in the chest. You know, I had to take responsibility for taking someone's life. Mm -hmm. And it was horrible. And I was crying. I said, well, what am I going to do? Didn't think I was going to live through it. And he says, what you're going to do is live your life to make a difference, is to turn a negative into a positive. You know, dedicate your life to service, help other people, make your life and his life mean something. And that was it. It got in my head. And so this is my life. You know, this is what I love to do, my Someone asked me the other day, like, what makes you happiest? And I knew without a doubt, helping other people, mm-hmm. helping any acts of kindness, because he gives me a purpose. You know, I don't want to be here on earth to use drugs, to wreak havoc, to hurt me and everybody else. Absolutely, stuff happens, trauma happens. Kids are messed up all the time. I mean, even now, someone somewhere is getting hurt. Mm-hmm. So... What can I do? I can do the best I can in every day to be kind, to be helpful, to be of service. And Charles gave me that. He gifted me with that opportunity. So after a few weeks, maybe a year down the road, I was asked to share at a meeting, and I was driving out on 41, way out in the Everglades, and there was a gazillion stars in the sky, and I was going to the Mikasuki Treatment Center to share a message. And I looked in the sky, and I said, You know, because I said, he's somewhere. I killed his body, but I didn't kill his soul. He exists somewhere. He's somewhere. He might be right there, one of them stars. So I reached out to Charles. I said, Charles, I said, can you help me? 
when I go to this place, share a message that somebody can get some hope from. Be with me. Help me. Mm-hmm. I kind of did a mental fist pump mm-hmm. with him, and then from that day on, we've developed a relationship. I don't feel guilty. I don't feel, ho- you know, because I went through the horror and the guilt and the remorse, you know, after Process. I wrote the letter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I don't feel that way anymore. I feel like we're like this. Anytime I go to share, I, you know, honor him, and, and I mention it pretty much every time I talk to people, and, um, you know, we've gotten through it. In 2019, I had the opportunity to—I've been on paper my whole life. I've been either in prison or on parole. So I had a, um opportunity to ask for—I had a review, my parole review, life parole— and some friends in my, commu- my recovery community, my family, and some outside friends, we made a journey to Tallahassee to have that hearing. And uh, I had the opportunity to share my story about Charles with the parole commissioners. Mm-hmm. And it was probably one of the most spiritually energized rooms I've ever felt. I mean, people that didn't even know us, there was a bunch of us, you know, mm-hmm. they were like, my God, you know, they were so amazed, and it was really like a God-filled room. And then the parole commissioner said, why didn't your parole officer recommend parole? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm like, what? And I said, because she doesn't know me. Mm -hmm. I said, she doesn't know me. I've only been with her a short time. I said, I was with Mr. The Other Man for like seven years. I said, he grew to respect me and like me. We had a great mutual respect and relationship, but she doesn't know me. So they discussed it, and then they said, all right, we agree to terminate your life parole. Wow. And everybody in the room was, yeah, it was like crazy. It was like a movie. And um, so that's one of the big moments of my life. And um, I don't know, I kind of rambled around and Mm -hmm. everything, but I hope I got the basic message out. Absolutely. What do you do now? Um, What does your life consist of? I mean, so people know, you know, you've been clean over 18 years. Congratulations. Thank you. In March, I made 18 years. And all year, I can't I'm a March uh, baby, too. Are you? Yeah, March 23rd. Wow, I'm March 12th. Okay. Yeah, the treatment center sent a guy up there to bring me straight from prison Mm -hmm. to the place in um, March 12th. My mom was always into the souvenir business, right? Mm-hmm. Hustling the tourists and everything. She grew up like that because her dad was a hunter. He sold alligator hides and turtles to people in West Palm, and he was always out in the swamps. And my mom grew up in that tourist trade, so she had always wanted a nice gift shop, like a tourist gift shop. And she built a little mom-and-pop store out on the Big Cypress Reservation in the 70s. Mm. She always tried to maintain it. It was never really like what she wanted, but she worked hard, and it lasted for a long time. But when I got home after treatment, she was talking about retiring. This had to be around 04. She didn't really want to, but she didn't have the, you know, she was just getting older. And so... She was going to just lease the property and be go on, and me and my sister said, man, we'll take it up for you. And we got a one-point-something million-dollar loan, and we built a 4,000-square-foot convenience store. God mm-hmm. has a sense of humor, right, because I own yeah. part of a convenience of store. Yeah. And it's a convenience store wow. with a grill and a gift shop for my mom's souvenirs. And, mm-hmm. you know, before she passed in 16, she had a lot of time to just go over there and sit and be the big cheese and, Mm -hmm. you know, and just really enjoy something that she felt like she accomplished in her life. And so I'm a part owner of the store. And then my sister and I have a business at the Hard Rock. I work for her. Mm -hmm. 
And life is good. I mean, you know, I work a lot. I wish I could retire, but, <laughs> you know, it just doesn't happen that way. I love my 12-step community. I have a lot of friends and do the meeting, eating, and, you know, yeah. just fellowshipping. And, you know, and I've had the opportunity to travel. I've spoken at, I spoke at the World Convention Workshop in Philadelphia. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that was one of the real big yeah, moments. I went to the Philly convention. It was Did you? incredible. It was yeah. a m- when the mayor came out in the beginning, it was out of this world. When the, the mayor was up there, <laughs> I could not believe like It was the cuz he had like a mom who struggled with the addiction and I remember he was like, "You know what you do when you take that first step? You take another one and another one and another one." It was so cool. I know, I'll never forget. <laughs> yeah, that world yeah. convention was the coolest thing. Yeah, I shared yeah. in a workshop on the 8th and ninth step and had wow. the opportunity again to share about Charles and everything. Have you ever spoken to Charles' family? Mm-mm. No. Never. I don't even know if he had a family or, you know, I remember when the detective... How old was he? You know what? In my perception as a kid, I would have thought he was old, but he was probably in his 40s -hmm. or maybe not even that old. I thought in my perception, I thought he was an old man. Yeah. Yeah. I used to say it was an old guy, but he. I don't think he was that old. The only reason I know that is... When I got arrested and the detectives were interrogating me, they said, yeah, this guy, he was a nice guy. You know, he didn't really have anybody. He was just trying to make a, you know, they were trying to get me to say something. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, but I was hard as a rock. I wasn't even listening Mm -hmm. to them. I'm like, yeah, whatever, you know. So I don't think he was that old. But later on in life, after treatment and everything, I did ask my therapist, I said, should I? You know, look for the grave. Should I find Pete? He says, why? I said, I don't know. You know, like he says, you're good. You can leave that behind and go mm-hmm. forward. And, you know, he thought it might be a little bit too traumatizing. To, to go and yeah, re- to rekindle that. Right. Reopen things. How is the seminal addiction, you know, issues going on now? And how is like the recovery aspect of it as well? Well, we've pretty much had, like I said, my dad drank, and it's been not just our reservation, but with Native Americans in general, alcoholism and drug abuse was has been big because, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, we were very impoverished for a long time. It was like a lot of hopelessness or seemingly hopelessness, mm-hmm. and it's been a big problem for a long time. But what we love now, me and some others, are like we have meetings We have our uh, behavioral health that are really geared to placing people in treatment Mm -hmm. with our, um, you know, with our funds now. We can pretty much help anyone struggling, even with, like you said, mental health, Mm -hmm. anything. We've been blessed, like I said, with the opportunity because of the um, gaming revenue to do pretty much everything we can for our people. So it's lovely. I mean, Mm -hmm. just the fact that we have meetings in the Hollywood Res, Big Cypress, and Brighton, yeah. We have our own recovery, a little community, Mm -hmm. and we do stuff. We have fish fries, you know. We had all kinds of little events Mm -hmm. and really try to, you know, give hope to others and be there when they're ready. So it's awesome. Well, I want to thank you. It's been a hell of a story. I appreciate you so much. Congrats on your journey. Well, thank you. Like they always say, it is an honor and a privilege, you know, and um, I really give a shout out to Charles. Me and him are on good terms. I thank him every day for this opportunity, and we're together, and I'm 
really grateful for that. So thank you for letting me share. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.